All right, Salt City, welcome back. We are continuing our study through Romans chapter 8 this morning. And just as a little recap, basically what we've seen so far in Romans 8 is that Jesus has taken care of our condemnation. That was week one. And then we saw that the spirit has come to live inside of us to help us to fight against sin and on a daily basis to win that battle. And then last week, the topic of suffering was introduced and we were left off seeing that the spirit of God lives inside of us and that he is groaning for us to be rescued from this world and to be in eternity in heaven with God forever. And this week is sort of a part two of last week's message. And what we're going to be doing this week is really zooming out and looking at the topic of suffering and God's goodness in it and love for us despite the pain from like a 30,000 foot perspective. And I hope that you're able to leave this morning feeling like even though life is painful, and even though what I'm going through right now is hard, God is good. And I don't always see him working, but I am going to take by faith that he is working. And so what we're really going to do is ground our hope that God is at work in all things in his love. And so we're going to see that the love of God is our hope in all things. And so we're basically going to see three reminders of God's love in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30. And the first reminder is that we are loved. So look at verse 28 with me. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And so when you think about this topic of the love of God, I think different people have different perspectives on what God's love is. Even people who don't believe the Bible will say that they believe that God is love or that love wins. And so when we talk about the love of God or talk about being loved by God, we need to make sure that our definition of what love is comes from the Bible and doesn't come from our own mind and get imposed on the Bible. And so what I want to do is just walk through this text and show you where I got this point from. And so he starts off the text by saying, we know. And so based on what he said before and what he's going to say after this, he wants us to have an assurance and we know that he wants us to have an assurance that God is working for our good and that he has given us a purpose for our life. But between him saying, we know, we can have this type of assurance, he says that this assurance is only for those who love God, which might cause us, instead of to have assurance, to question whether or not we're in. Because we might begin to think, wait, am I a person who loves God or am I a person who does not love God? 
which is why we've got to even zoom out from this text. And let me give you some context. When Paul talks about our love for God, we need to know that our love for God is always grounded first and foremost in his love for us. So the way that God loves us is different than the way that we love him. Let me give you a couple examples, one from Romans and one from 1 John to color in what I mean by that. So Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then John picks up the same theme in 1 John 4.19 and says that we love because he first loved us. And so what we see about God's love is that his love is a giving love. His love looks at sinful people who have nothing to offer him and he gives his son to them as the atoning sacrifice for our sins and he gives his spirit to them placing his spirit inside of them so that they no longer have a heart of stone that is rebellious against God, but actually a heart that beats with love for God. And so God's love is a giving love. And then in the whole context of scripture, our love is a responding love. In other words, our love is always going to God to get something, not going to God to give something. So in the context of Romans 8:28, when it says that those who love for those who love God, all things work together for good. I don't want you to think of giving something to God as if God is in need of your affirmation, but I want you to think of responding to his love. So in other words, a person who loves God is someone who looks at the sacrifice of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit and says, yes, I need that. I need this message of no condemnation. I need a perfect substitutionary sacrifice in my Savior. I need the Holy Spirit. I need everything that God has to offer me. And it's a person who says, thank you for what God has done in the past and says, I trust you, God, for what you're going to do in the future. Paul will continue to unpack this theme. Let me give you kind of a preview of coming attractions here to further explain this idea. So Romans 8 verse 32 says this, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things. So here's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, if you want to specifically know what it looks like to respond to God in love, here's how you reason. You look at the cross and you see that God sent his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And on that basis, what you say is, if God did something that was so loving that he sent his own son, then how could he possibly do anything to harm me? How could he not graciously give me everything in my life that is for my thriving and that is for my good? And so that's Paul's logic here. 
for those who love God, in other words, for those who trust God, who believe in Jesus, all things work together for good. So here's what we're not saying. We're not saying that everything is good. We're saying life is often very painful. For some of you, life is like viscerally painful right now. And we're saying that is not contradictory to the Christian experience. You even look at the life of Jesus and he wept when he was on the earth. He cried out in agony when he was in the garden of Gethsemane. And he even questioned what was happening when he was on the cross. And so our savior not only affirms that we will feel pain, but he actually felt pain himself. And so it's not that we're saying that life is not painful. We are acknowledging life is very painful. Included in those all things are very painful life events. We're not saying that those things are good, but we're saying that we take by faith that God is good. And so we believe that he is working those things for our good. He is in control and loves us in such a way that everything turns out good in the end, even very painful circumstances. So our responsibility in life is to believe that in the midst of the pain, to hold on to this reality that God is working for good, even though it seems like all of our circumstances at times are saying something very contradictory to that. And so I think that what God wants us to do is to clothe ourselves in humility and to become like little children again, to believe that we are loved, even in this moment, to believe that God has our best at heart. I was thinking back to kind of a traumatic moment in my life. When I was in second grade, I had like this golf ball sized lymph node swell up on my neck. And I also was having a lot of problems with sore throats and and different things like that. So I went to the doctor to get it checked out. And basically they said that I had to get surgery and I had to get this golf ball sized growth off the side of my neck taken off, which is probably a good idea. And also to get my tonsils and adenoids taken out. And basically I had no idea what was going on. I didn't really understand medically what was happening. I didn't understand really what surgery was or what that was going to look like. But my parents told me that all of this pain that I was going to have to go through was for my good. And I remember reasoning, well, my parents love me. And if they tell me that this is going to turn out for good in the end, then I am willing to endure this painful circumstance because I trust my parents. It probably wasn't that logical. It was probably really simple, right? I probably didn't think it through that hard, but I never remember resisting having to go in for the surgery because I trusted my parents. And likewise, it's actually very simple. We believe that the God who sent Jesus to die for us has our best at heart. And so we actually 
can feel loved in the midst of very difficult circumstances because we believe that God is good, not that our circumstances are good. So we believe that we are loved right now, not because the pain is taken away, but because God is working all things, even very painful circumstances for our good. That's the first point. We are loved. The second point brings us into a deep mystery about who God is. And that's that we've actually always been loved. So look at verse 29 with me. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Okay, so by starting verse 29 with the word for, Paul is saying, I'm giving you another reason that you can trust that God is working out all things for your good. He's saying, okay, I already gave you one reason. Now let me give you another reason. And he says that the reason that he's given is that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So we get into these two mysterious words, foreknew and predestined. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now there's a common interpretation of this verse that says that what Paul means here is that God in eternity past looked into our present moment and he was able to see who would trust in Jesus for salvation. On, and on the basis of that foreknowledge, God predestined, in other words, predetermined certain people's destiny to be in heaven on the basis of their choice. And basically God's agenda in doing it this way was to protect people's free will. And although sort of the math works in that equation, that's actually not what Paul is saying here. And the reason I say that is because of the meaning of the word foreknew. So basically, in this passage, foreknew is not limited to God's knowledge of our choices, but has a much deeper meaning than that, a meaning that we can really sink the teeth of our faith into. When he says foreknew, what a literal interpretation of that word would actually be is that God foreloved us. So God had this deep knowledge and love for you in eternity past. When you were just a thought in his mind, he knew you at the core of your being. He knew everything about you. He designed you to love you. And so the idea that we're getting at here when we see the word foreknew is the same idea that's found in Jeremiah 1 through 5 when 
God is having this conversation with this prophet who is a reluctant prophet. And this is what God says to Jeremiah. He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. You see what God's saying there? He's, He's looking at Jeremiah, this guy who's living in very difficult circumstances, called to do a very difficult thing. And he's saying, this is what you can bank your hope on. Before you were even formed in your mother's womb, I knew you. And here's what Paul's doing. He's grabbing this rich tradition of Jeremiah, this rich tradition of the Old Testament, and he's actually applying it to every single believer in Jesus. And he's saying, if you're ever tempted to question God's love for you, remember this reality. There has never been a moment when God didn't love you. And then on this basis, so in eternity past, God set his love on you. He had this intimate foreknowledge of you. He foreloved you, not because of anything about you, but simply because of his own purpose and grace. According to the counsel of his own will, he set his love on you. And on that basis, he predestined you. He predetermined your destiny, heaven forever. So your salvation was actually guaranteed before you were even conceived by God himself. This is mind-blowing grace. It sort of takes grace up to the next level. And as you begin to think about these things, two things will simultaneously begin to happen in your mind. One is, I think at first, your mind's just going to be blown, and you're going to be like, wow, this is amazing. Grace is more free than I ever knew that it could be. But there's also going to be some questions, and you're going to begin to have some intellectual problems with this because you're going to be like, what about human responsibility? What about free will? How do those things work together? And I don't want to try to dive in and answer all of the questions about that, but I want to show you Paul's response to these truths. The person who penned these very words, I want you to see how he responds when he gets to the end of his sermon about these things. In Romans chapter 11, verses 33 through 36, this is what Paul says. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. So Paul looks at these truths about God's foreknowledge and about predestination. And he looks at them and he doesn't say, I get it. I understand. I've figured out the sum of math. He's saying, 
this is an unsolvable mystery. And what it should lead our hearts to is not pride that we have all the right answers, but it should lead us to humble worship of God, where we actually see that God's ways are unsearchable to us. Theology, in other words, a right understanding of God, leads to doxology, which is worship of God. It doesn't lead us to a prideful, smug place where we say, I finally arrived at all the right answers. It leads us to this place where we're like, wow, God is amazing. And it leads us to this conclusion, which is amazing. In verse 36 of Romans 11, from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. You see the logic? There's no boasting left. Because if grace is this free, that God chose us before the foundation of the world and that he has always loved us and the ultimate reason for our salvation is his choice, not ours, it leads us to this place where we understand that we have contributed nothing to our salvation. But it is a free gift of God. Do do you remember when you were a kid and it came around to be Christmas or a, a birthday of one of your parents and you felt this responsibility to give one of your parents a gift, but you're six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old and you don't have a job and you have no ability to get a job. And so the only way that you can give your parents a gift is actually to become more indebted to your parents. So you have to go to your parents and you have to say, hey, could I get some money so that I could buy you a gift? Would you drive me to a store? And I don't really know what you would want, so will you help me pick out the gift? And so the only way to give your parents a gift is actually to become more indebted to your parents. And in like fashion, in our faith, The only way to contribute anything to God is with what he's already given us. Everything that we have is a gift from God. Our salvation is a gift from God. Our faith is a gift from God so that none of us can boast, but we can only worship God, that he has always loved us. And so we stand in awe of him. And we have incredible assurance going forward. Because if it's always been about what he can do for us, not what we've done for him, then there's no reason to believe that his love will ever go away. And so we finally see in this text that we will forever be loved. We're we're not just loved now. We haven't just always been loved. We will forever be loved. Look at verse 30. It says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So this text has been called over the years the unbreakable chain 
of our salvation. And it really zooms out and explains how we got saved from God's perspective. So think like from 30,000 feet, it's explaining how we were saved. And so we talked a little bit about predestination. So God predetermined our destiny before the foundation of the world on the basis of his foreknowledge. So he loved us in eternity past, predetermined our destiny. And then at some point, he came into our life and through the preaching of the gospel, he called us. Now, when you see the word call, you might immediately think of a phone call. And sometimes our salvation is explained this way. It's a call in the sense that God calls and we have a chance, the opportunity to either pick up or to decline that call. But since this word called is part of this unbreakable chain of salvation, it's saying that every person who is predestined is also called. And every person who gets called is also justified. And every person who's justified is also glorified. So the word called in this context cannot mean a call where you have the option to respond or not. But it's actually a deeper and a greater call. The better explanation for this word call would be like the type of call that Jesus gave to Lazarus when Lazarus was dead and Jesus said, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. There was no option. Lazarus got up because the Lord of the universe told him to get up. It it wasn't like a call and response thing. This was like, you get called, you rise from the dead. This is a rise from death call. So at some point, You were in a meeting with one of your friends. The gospel was preached. You left believing and your friend left dead in their sins. What's the difference? Why did you leave believing? Why did your friend go on a very different path? Because you got called. You both heard the gospel message, but God caused your heart to come alive. That's what Paul means here by the word called. And so every person who was predestined gets this type of calling and every person who gets this type of calling is justified. And what justified means is that you have been counted righteous in Jesus. It means you have believed in the cross of Jesus. You believe that he took your guilt on himself and that in exchange for your guilt, He gave you his perfect obedience. So it's not just that you're back to zero. It's as if you've never sinned. It's as if your bank account, which was at zero, is now filled with a billion dollars. You've got Jesus' righteousness in your account. And it's not because you deserve it, or it's not because you're righteous in yourself but it's because Jesus has substituted himself for you. And so, as we saw in Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for you. Instead, God looks at you as if you were Jesus himself. Okay, so now what we would expect to happen 
in the text is a couple things. We would think that next, Paul would say, okay, you've been predestined, you've been called, you've been justified. And then we would think he would say, and those whom he justified, he is in the process of sanctifying. And then we would think, and he will one day glorify. But Paul throws us a curveball here because he doesn't include the process of sanctification and he puts the word glorify in the past tense. He says, you have already been glorified. Why would he do that? Because Paul doesn't believe that we have actually been glorified, been given our resurrected body, are already in heaven and are already sinlessly perfect. So why does he say glorified in the past tense? Here's why. He wants you as a Christian to have unshakable certainty that you are God's child. And so he throws glorified in the past tense and puts it in this unbreakable chain of salvation to show you that as surely as God has been faithful to predestine you and call you and justify you, he will, not because you deserve it, but because he is faithful, he will glorify you. And so from God's perspective, this 30,000 foot perspective, you are already glorified. And this word glorified, it literally means you are worthy, you are dignified, you are beautiful, you are wonderful, and you are praiseworthy. So when God looks at you, think about this, despite all your sin and all your struggle and you being in this process of sanctification and you trying with all your might as the Holy Spirit works within you to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to be like Jesus, and you're falling so short of that and you honestly feel so ugly so much of the time and God looks at you and this is what he says, in my heart, in my mind, you're already glorified. You are already completely worthy of my love, my respect, my praise, my honor. And he wants us to take on this perspective. He wants us to see that one day, think about this, one day we're going to stand before God in heaven and and we're going to see his beauty, his incomprehensible beauty. He's going to be shining like the sun in full strength. That's what Revelation says. We're going to see his glory. Like like you think um, of standing in front of like the most famous person in the world, like a celebrity. Think how your your hands would be shaking and and you'd be like, oh, can I have your autograph? And, And you'd be in awe. It's going to be like that times a billion. You'd be standing before God And two things are going to be going through your mind. One is, wow, he is glorious and he is beautiful, but you're going to think, am I worthy? Am I worthy? And this is the amazing thing. The creator of the stars is going to look at you and you're going to say, wow. And he is actually going to say, wow, you're beautiful. 
I think that is going to be the most shocking thing possible for us. That it's not just that we will see God as beautiful and we will glorify him, but the most amazing act of grace will happen that God will return the favor and glorify us. He will say, you are beautiful in my sight. So this is our hope, Christian. This is our hope. It's that every moment of your life right now, all the painful moments, the existential crisis that we have related to politics, related to justice, related to our own safety and COVID-19, related to all of our daily struggles and our, our mental issues and everything that we're fighting against inside of ourselves, dealing with our sin, all of that, all things are working toward this moment when we will be glorified. So here's what I'm calling us as a church to do. To believe that God is good. To hope against hope. To not look at our circumstances, but instead to look at God and to simply cling to this reality, moment by moment, cling. And, and when we drift from this reality, to come back to it, to cling to this reality that God is at work because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will graciously give us all things. Let's cling to that reality together. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for this hard to understand, big God, amazing text that grounds our faith in the midst of the very difficult circumstances that we often find ourselves in. And we often find ourselves just crying out in the midst of our lives. God, are you even there? Have you forsaken us? Have you left us all alone? How could this possibly work together for good? And so thank you for telling us that it will, that we can have assurance that we will stand before you one day and you will say, wow, you are beautiful, that we will one day be conformed to the image of Jesus. Help us to hold on. God, I, I just pray for that person whose faith is so weak right now. They, they feel like it's just like a match that's been lit and it could be blown out at any moment. Would you just fan the flame? Would you help them just to be anchored to this reality and trust in you? Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.